The South Pole, one of the most desolate places on Earth. The temperature dips to 117 degrees below zero. 55 mile an hour winds whip the dry, powdery snow into a frenzy. And the brutal conditions are intensified by six months of complete darkness. This is winter at the South Pole. There's no sun, the cold temperatures plummet, and any exposed flesh can suffer frostbite within just a few minutes. Nothing, I mean nothing, can survive for long under these harsh conditions. It's so cold that when I go outside, I have to wear long underwear, and then at least two or three sweaters, uh, and then usually a fleece jacket, and then over top of all of this, I wear uh, one of these Canada Goose down-filled jackets that we call a big red and uh and then a, a very good don't believe me just ask mac von rossum he lives at the south pole inside the amazon scott south pole station you gain about two or three inches on your height when you wear them and then <clears throat> on my hands i wear liner gloves and underneath my mittens and i usually have to wear some sort of hand warmer or something underneath and then on my head i have three balaclavas on where I have like a synthetic material and then a fleece balaclava over top of that. And then on top of both of those, I have this very colorful wool balaclava that I got in Ecuador. I'm Kim Commando, host of the nation's largest radio show about everything digital. And today I'm talking about the coolest place on earth, literally the South Pole. We'll find out how a select few elite scientists live in one of the most extreme environments in the world and try to answer one of the most important questions, why? The South Pole is one of the coldest places on Earth. Daylight lasts for six months. The sun shines brightly against extremely white snow, producing a blinding glare. And that's followed by six months of complete darkness, when the temperature plummets even further from the lack of any heat. Colder, colder, and colder. Darker, darker, and even darker with no sign of relief. A place so desolate, so remote, its mere existence was even questioned for centuries. Scientists were able to prove it did exist in the 1820s, but it would be decades before the first men stepped foot on the most savage place on Earth. Expeditions were making their way to Antarctica by the early 20th century. Then came the race to make it all the way to the South Pole, another 900 miles from the coast in treacherous conditions. The two main competitors, Robert Falcon Scott and Roald Amundsen. Amundsen reaches the South Pole in December of 1911. Scott arrives about a month later. But tragedy strikes the Scott expedition. The entire team dies on the return trip to base camp. the team's contributions will never be forgotten. That's because 45 years after the tragedy, the United States built the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station, a research facility for scientists from around the world. The station has been built, tore down, and rebuilt over the years as engineers add the latest technology to keep those inside warm and protected from the harsh environment just outside. The building is home to about 200 scientists during the warmer Arctic summer months. But when winter hits and temperatures plummet to nearly 120 degrees below zero, can you imagine that? Think about how cold that is. 
A group of about 50 people stay and they maintain the facility. They have the distinction of being called winter overs. Mac is one of 48 scientists, engineers, medics, cooks, electricians, and plumbers overseeing the facility during the dark winter months. I spoke to Mac during a rare interview that was extremely difficult to set up. The stars have to align, and I mean literally. There are no landlines hooking the South Pole to the rest of civilization. All communication relies on satellite. And because of the axis of the Earth, there's only a limited amount of time these modern-day explorers can use satellites to communicate. There's a couple different satellites that we have access to. Uh, one is pretty much unusable, where it's it's worse than dial-up sort of thing, so it, it doesn't, it's not very good. Um, and then there's another one that is sort of good enough that you can check your email, but not a whole lot else. And then there's the one that we're using right now, which is called Spitter. The satellite window is only open for a short time every day. And it's not very convenient, at least for me here in Phoenix, Arizona. Mac and I spoke about 5.30 in the evening on a Wednesday, South Pole time. For me, it was 10.30 at night on a Tuesday. During the entire interview, I kept thinking about how isolated the South Pole is and what would happen if there were an emergency. If things are going bad and we really need to get in touch with some of the experts in the North, there is an alternative satellite system called the Iridium satellite that has 24-7 access. And so we can make just phone calls over that. And they're really difficult phone calls where there's a slight echo on my end and it's very crackly and, you know, you can really tell it's a rough connection. And that's the only lifeline for these adventurers. That's because traveling to the South Pole is nearly impossible during the winter. There's no way to jump into your four-wheel drive for a road trip or hitch a ride in an airplane. Travel is just way too dangerous. Here the... You know, it's snow everywhere. And so all the planes have skis that they land on rather than wheels. Um, but even with skis, they need some sort of shock absorbing gasket or something like this. And so the fluid that is inside these gaskets will start to freeze too. And so the tendency that if a plane tries to land here, unless they're, you know, it's a, it's a very risky maneuver, but um, generally the, the gaskets won't work and the skis have a tendency to just break off. You might remember their story from 1999. That's when Jerry Nielsen, a doctor working at the South Pole, discovered a lump on her breast. Dr. Nielsen was forced to perform a biopsy on herself to confirm the lump was cancer. It took another few months before the weather was warm enough to perform her evacuation safely. Although Dr. Nielsen's cancer went into remission, she unfortunately died five years later when the cancer returned. The doctor's diagnosis, more than 15 years later, is helping the current crew at the South Pole. There may only be one doctor, but several crew members, including Mac, are now trained as medics, just in case something does go wrong. They teach us, A, how to deal with emergency situations where there's a trauma event, like someone breaks a leg or whatever like this. Um, but then they, we're, we've also been learning, for example, this last week, how to intubate people. So how to put people under in preparation for some sort of surgery. And so there's a doctor and a, and a physician's assistant on station, but they can't do all of the work themselves. And so they're helping us teach these sort of extra little tasks that aren't, you know, aren't super difficult, but are also extremely important that we know how to do it properly. No matter your job, those people working at the South Pole, they have to do double duty. Some crew members are first responders. Others work in the logistics, but everyone has KP. 
We rotate through having dish pit. We have a single steward who does the huge majority of the dishes, but uh, that's not quite enough to do the dishes, just one person for everyone on station. And so we have other people who rotate through a uh, you know, dish pit duty. Mac is a physicist working on a project called Ice Cube. How appropriate is that? It was developed by scientists at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. It requires scientists to study these subatomic particles called neutrinos and discover how they interact with each other using light and the massive block of ice at the South Pole. Now, the South Pole is uniquely suited for this kind of experiment because, well, it's the only place that has a big enough chunk of ice. Max spends most of his day, thankfully, in the comfort of a laboratory collecting data from sensors deep beneath the surface of the ice. But getting to that lab is pretty treacherous. So the building that I, I do a lot of my work in is called Ice Cube Lab, or ICL, I'll refer to it as. And ICL is about a, a mile or so of a walk from station. And so there's a lot of times when the wind is so high that you can't see it when you first leave the station door. And so what we do at the start of the season is we have all these sort of bamboo sticks with small little flags at the top. Mac lines the mile-long trail from the main building to his laboratory with these flags. It helps him find the building when the wind is howling and the visibility is down to just a few feet. And get this, since his experiment deals with light, he can't use any kind of flashlight. So just imagine what it's like. Temperatures down to 120 degrees below zero, out in the middle of a blizzard, blowing snow, whipping across your face. Now, visibility down to zero without any light source. Oh, and there's a mile trek between you and where you have to be. Everyone who gets a job at the South Pole goes through a rigorous application and training process. This includes a complete psychological evaluation. But even Mac questions how answering a few questions can really give a health professional insight into your total well-being. It's 600 sort of true or false questions and then like a short five or 10 minute interview with a psychologist to, to see whether you're mentally qualified to come down here. And I just don't know how good of a job they can really do to weed out people who aren't qualified in that short period of time. Mac admits he's not a doctor and acknowledges that others, including some top scientists, have been rejected for failing the psychological screening. About 50 winter overs occupy the 80,000 square foot building at the South Pole. They can't go out to restaurants, they can't go to the mall, and they can't pick up the phone anytime they want. Life for them is limited. They interact with the same people day in and day out for months at a time. In most cases, they can't even leave the building because it's so dark outside. What do they do? They try to make the best of it. There's a very good weight room along with, uh, you know, basketball and you can set up volleyball, badminton, all, all of these sorts of sports um, people can do. There's a great music room filled with guitars and banjos and things like this. Um, there are, there's a, a room with a projector and another room with a big screen TV so people can watch movies or play video games or things like this. There are also books and a greenhouse. Everyone loves the greenhouse. Not only can they grow vegetables, it's also one of the only rooms with more than 0% humidity. You'd think that there would be limited food choices when living in such an isolated area, but it's actually just the opposite. And we're going to get to that in just a second. 
Those working at the South Pole are pretty well fed. Not only does their chef prepare five-star cuisine, he's also known for his delicious baked goods. As the old adage goes, the fastest way to a person's heart is through his stomach. An interesting side note to all the food prepared at the South Pole. Check this out. Those living on the ice don't have to worry about animals. So all the food is kept in the frigid temperatures outside. And there's 0% humidity. That means no freezer burn. Now consider that cargo planes can only make deliveries during the Antarctic summers. Bottom line, frozen food at the South Pole really lasts for many years. Outside is a really, really good freezer because it's so dry here. Like uh, the, the South Pole is technically a desert because all the moisture gets frozen out of the air and it almost never actually snows. So the, the wind sort of blows the snow around and so you get snowy weather, but the snow, it doesn't actually have precipitation that often. Um, and then on top of this, because it's so cold, all the water gets frozen out of the air and so our humidity level is extremely, extremely low. Mac told me he had beef wellington for dinner the other night. He thinks, listen to this, the beef wellington could have been about five years old, but it was still good. Now, there's one particular dish Mac misses from his home in Canada. In Vancouver, <laughs> on UBC campus, there is this greasy Asian combo that has this spicy chicken and you get it with fried rice and then you know, two other items of your choice. And I literally ate this every day for a full calendar year, shortly before coming here. And uh, so I, I miss that particular meal the most, I would say. As you might expect, Mac also misses his family and his family misses him. I actually spoke to Mac's mom, Perry from Ontario. She told me that she questioned how someone, anyone, would want to spend six months in darkness. He was quite intrigued by that opportunity and to be able to observe the night sky. And that was actually one of the things that drew him to this experience was being able to see what it would be like to live in darkness for that length of time. Perry and I talked about Mac at length. I discovered he's a very social animal, but she's afraid what might happen living in a place that's so isolated from the rest of the world. But then she remembered her son's passion for his chosen profession. He's a physicist and his time to be undistracted and work on things like teaching himself uh, pure mathematics. And he wouldn't have that with the normal distractions of everyday life in society. Perry admits she and her family are adventurers. And that's probably why Mac never had a second thought about living six months in the dark with four dozen complete strangers. But it's something she would never even consider doing. Perry ponders the vast distance that separates her in Canada and her son, a half a world away at the South Pole. She's amazed that at certain times of the day, she can actually pick up the phone and talk to him, just like he's right down the street. I was just gobsmacked at how incredible technology has um, affected our ability to stay in touch and communicate with one another. You know, if I didn't know, it, it would be as though he was anywhere. I mean, he could be on the moon for goodness sakes, even though he's, he's just, he might as well be, he's so remote and he's so far away. And I think that that technology, that ability to communicate really eases 
a lot of the worries or concerns one might have of a you know being a mom of having somebody in this such a remote place. Sure, Perry says technology can help stay in touch, but nothing replaces physical contact. That's one thing she can't wait to do. She wants to hug her son as soon as he comes home for Christmas. The Amis and Scott South Pole Station is one of the most technologically advanced places in the world. Everything scientists need to perform their work is at their fingertips. There are a few things they don't have access to, though, like television. Sure, they have this huge movie library, but there's no way to stream the latest Star Wars flick or watch live news from the United States. Live radio is also out. And forget about cell phones for two reasons. First of all, one of the experiments being performed there is linked to radiation, and cell phones could interfere with the experiment. And secondly, as you might expect, there are no cell phone towers and there is no cell phone service. Well, yeah, that too. Mac admits that sometimes, just sometimes, they're looking for something, anything to divert their attention from the fact that they're cooped up with the same people in a relatively small building for months at a time. That's why when someone found a moth, they celebrated its life when it died. A moth that got somehow carried in from the coast and people were really excited about that for the like two or three days that it lived. And then it died and there's a little funeral procession. Consider the station at the South Pole like a mini city. Everything that happens where you live happens on the ice. And that includes taking care of the station's waste. I know, it's probably something that you didn't want to know about, but trash and recyclables are collected and housed during the winter. Then, when the weather's warm enough, it's shipped to a dump in the United States. Human waste stays at the South Pole using this ingenious method called rod wells. We, we dig down through the fern and we get to where it becomes solid ice and we just melt a big sort of light bulb shape into the ice and then we suck it up. And that's how we get our water. And so what we deal with human waste is we just put it into the old rod wells and just let it freeze again. So now that you know that answer, what about the South Pole as a vacation destination? There are no high-end hotels or Airbnbs. This is how it works. And it's only available during the Antarctic summer, December and January. Campers make their way to South America. They board a plane and they land right at the South Pole for a week of fun, camping out in relatively warm temperatures. It's only about 20 degrees below zero. Visitors are not allowed to tour the station. Now the cost for this fun-filled adventure? About $50,000, yikes. But the visitors do get to see two South Poles. One is a ceremonial pole, similar to a red and white barber's pole with a crystal ball right on top. Then there's the geographical South Pole that's moved every year. The glacial ice shifts underneath us by about 10 meters each year, and so they have to reposition the pole. And they do that on uh, New Year's Day each year. And the new pole is actually designed by the winter overs of the previous year. And so that's one of the tasks that the 48 of us have to do this year, is figure out what we want next year's pole to look like. With the South Pole identifying a landmark in human history, a quest finally achieved by two fearless adventurers and an icon of what some of the greatest human minds ever accomplished, I had to ask one last question. Did he ever lick it? <laughs> that sounds dangerous. I have not, no, I've not licked any poles. <laughs>
Mack has another six months at the poll. He'll leave about two weeks after being replaced by a new group of winter overs. Then it's off to another adventure. He's considering a second tour in the frozen abyss, but it's too early to say for sure. Meantime, he's looking forward to hugging his parents and that greasy chicken dish in Vancouver. At this point, after spending so long in the dark, you might say he can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm Kim Commando, and thanks for listening to this Commando On Demand podcast that we recorded here at our studios in beautiful, sunny, hot Phoenix, Arizona. And I just want to remind you, you can listen to my radio show every week in over 400 top stations across the country and around the world on Armed Forces Radio. To find the station nearest you, head over to commando.com slash radio. That's K-O-M-A-N-D-O dot com slash radio. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.